This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 316, A Conversation with Devin Grayson. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 316. It's our conversation with Devin Grayson. Uh, before we get into the episode, uh, I just wanted to do a little bit of house cleaning, or housekeeping, I should say. Not house cleaning, housekeeping. Um, unfortunately, uh, originally I had asked, uh, like I often do with our interview episodes, uh, for some input from listeners and from those at the Marvel Masterworks Forum. Uh, unfortunately, on the day of the interview, uh, I was trying to access the list of questions uh, and unfortunately on that specific day and the day before uh, that particular message board went down for whatever reason. Hopefully by the time this episode goes up it'll have been restored. Uh, Because it was down I wasn't able to access all the great questions that people had submitted so I do want to apologize for those who did put questions in there uh, that I wasn't able to get to them or even reference the the comics that you said that were your favorites that we could have talked about. Also I remembered right after we stopped our interview that I had forgotten to mention um, uh, a great Gotham Knights issue with Batman and Aquaman that I wanted to talk to her as well. So not only did I forget something I wanted to talk about, but I also didn't have a chance to ask some listener questions. So my apologies to those who did su- who did submit questions on the Marvel Masterworks forum. Uh, it was not intentional. It was purely because of the forum wasn't up that day and I couldn't access the questions. And I should have written them down, and I did not do that ahead of time. Uh, so my apologies. Um, Anyway, we'll get right into the episode in a moment. Uh, it's a, it was a fun conversation talking with Devin, talking about her time working for DC Comics and for Marvel and a few projects. Uh, definitely very interesting kind of talking about what it was like writing Nightwing's Adventures, uh, how she kind of got into comics and all that fun stuff. Uh, if you want to email us, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, and subscribe to us on iTunes as well. And you can also listen to us on Stitcher. So thanks again for downloading this episode, and Let's jump right into the conversation with Devin Grayson. Devin, thank you so much for joining us with the Comic Shenanigans. My pleasure. It's nice to be here. Uh, so uh, we're going to kind of uh, do a bit of a discussion of your career in comics. Um, now, unfortunately, I had a, a great list of questions uh, from listeners, and then the place where all those questions were uh, unexpectedly went down, so I can't no. access any of them. So, Internet, uh, why? I know. Uh, the Internet failed me today. So uh, I have my own questions, and I, ha- I remember some of the questions that some of the listeners had, so I'll try and pepper those as well. Uh, okay, great. Usually where we like to start, though, is what was your... What kind of first brought you into comics as a reader, if anything? Um, I actually grew up in a hippie household, and we just did not have comics around. I often say I wasn't allowed to read them, but I'm not sure anyone even thought that through. They just weren't in the landscape at all. Um, So I didn't encounter them until my uh, college years. And uh, actually, it was even after that. So my, my very early 20s, I just graduated from college, and I was watching the Batman animated series on TV, uh, which I think is responsible for much mischief in comics these days. Um, <laughs> but uh, I just absolutely fell head over heels in love with it, and especially the characters and the interactions between Batman and Robin. And uh, I wanted to know more. Uh, and being a you know, a sort of a researcher by nature at that point in my life, I sort of went to find where they came from and trace them back to their original medium, which was, of course, comics. So um, I walked into a comic store and and said, uh, I I need everything that you've got on Robin. I want to learn more about Robin. And uh, the guy behind the counter who uh, flash forward many years later is now my husband. But anyway, (laughs) at the time, he looks up and he says, which Robin? And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, like suddenly I realized how deep and crazy this world was that I was about to jump into. So um, he quickly figured out that I meant Dick Grayson, and we went from there. And I left that day with, um, you know, handfuls of Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman and uh, just really great stuff to dive into. And also Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, which was tremendously helpful, and I highly recommend it. Uh, And I was kind of hooked from that moment on. And... Not uh, two days later, I was on public transit, and I started being able to decode all the iconography on people's superhero T-shirts, and it was just—it was really exciting. It was like, oh, oh, that's Flash, and that's Green Lantern, and that guy's wearing a, and you know, it was part of, felt like being part of a secret club. So, um, I, I first got hooked on the medium, then the culture, and then the rest is history. Now, how did you? When when did you decide to be become a writer? Well, I'd 
already been writing and I was actually uh, doing a UC Berkeley extensions program in creative writing and trying to finish the great American novel like um, I think every American, right? Don't we all do that at some point? Um, and uh, so so the writing part I was really comfortable with. It was the comics that was super new to me. Um, and in my complete naivete, I cold called DC Comics one day for my office job and uh, just said, I need to talk to the guy in charge of Batman. And uh, they put me through because they used to do that. They used to have a switchboard and you could call and ask for anyone. They didn't ask who you were. They just transferred your call. It was beautiful. Um, and uh, so the next thing I know, Denny O'Neill's picking up the phone. And had I known who he was, I would have been probably too intimidated to say anything. But again, my just having come from nowhere really helped me in this case because I didn't realize the... Um, I didn't realize how lucky I'd been, and I kind of explained that I was really crazy about these characters, and I was someone who'd been writing for a long time, but I didn't know much about comics, and, um, you know, could they teach me? Was there something I could read, or a course they could suggest that I could take, or something? Um, and he was really quiet for a minute, and then he started to kind of laugh, uh, and he said that they got 200 calls a day from people who'd read every comic book ever written, but didn't know how to write, and could they you know, teach them how to write. And he's like, no, I really can't, not over the phone. But he said, but absolutely, we can teach you about comics if you're writing solid. So I sent in some writing samples and they sent recommendations ranging from uh, the the Robert McKee story structure class to, um, you know, to certain comics to read. And we sort of started this long distance tutelage. I was in California at the time. And of course, DC Comics was still based in New York at that time. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, one day they just said, okay, why don't you try a short script? And part of the brilliance of that period was that there were a lot of um, anthology books and places where a, an untried writer could try a much smaller piece. You know, they didn't have to hand you a whole series. Um, so my first script that I wrote for them was from a uh, Batman Chronicles piece, and it was just a seven or nine page story, seven page story, I think. Uh, and yeah, you just sort of kept going from there. When you first, what was, what did you think was your, the biggest obstacle when you started becoming a comic writer is in, like, obviously if you're going from writing prose to writing comics, it's a very different medium. What it was, is. What was the biggest obstacle when you first were kind of getting in? Um, I think learning to think that visually, because you have to think a little bit visually in prose too, to, to describe, um, your, your settings and stuff, but it's kind of up to you when you introduce those details. And in comics, it's absolutely not. You know, that has to be front and center every single time. Um, and there's also that kind of script writing. I used to joke it was almost like haiku. There's a real economy of um, uh, text that you can put down copy. I, I've always been comfortable with dialogue, but you can see in my early writing there was just way too much on the page, um, and it took a long time to learn to trust artists and sort of pull back. I, I'm really still pleased with Batman Gotham Knights. I, I really enjoyed working on that, but oh my god, it's so copy-heavy, and if, if I could do anything over again, I would sort of go back and uh, reel that in a little bit. And um, I think I had uh, like so each issue would have a narrator there was the dialogue and then there was the overarching device of the journal entries holding everything together so just you know lots of text on every page and um, kind of wanting to paint in a writerly fashion and learning how to not do that and actually paint in a more visual fashion and, and leave a lot of the stuff for the artists to fill in um, so it was I mean that was part of what was so enticing and exciting about it was that there was so much to learn and it was so different than what I've been doing but not completely out of my wheelhouse just enough to keep me really interested what were your collaborations with your various artistic kind of partners like in terms of you know were you more full script were you doing a little bit more I hate to say Marvel method but I mean more plot, yeah, that's but... kind of what it's called yeah uh, I always 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 work uh, in extremely full script even when I'm over at Marvel um, and uh, even when they tell me not to it just ends up coming out that way uh, to me that's where the conversation is happening between you and the artist so I want to be as clear as I possibly can about what I'm seeing and my intentions and the characters motivations and emotions all of that's on the page if the artist then takes all that and goes, nope, this is what it should look like, I'm totally fine with that. But I want to be really clear about what I'm seeing um, and how I envisioned everything. So, and the club, oh my God, I was so lucky. The people I worked with from the very, I think like Duncan for 
Laredo did my first story, and um, it wasn't too long before I was working with Brian Stelfreeze, and I, I just I got to work with some really amazing people. So that upped my trust, and it, it, it's seeing those pages come out. You know, when you have something in your head and you're working, first you've got the blank page, then finally you've got a script, and that's something. You know, you, you feel like you've created something, but then it comes back and it's alive and animated, and they've put this art. It's it's just. There, there, nothing beats that moment of, of seeing the pages come to life like that. Would you kind of go back and edit, like during the artistic process, um, depending on how the visuals looked, would you end, end ever go back and kind of edit the dialogue or would you kind of... Yeah, uh, definitely. And a lot of that actually had to do um, with that these were um, monthly, you know, serialized uh, on, a, on a publishing schedule of monthly serialization. So the art took longer than anything else. So there was never time to change the art. So if anything differed in the script between the art, it was always going to come back uh, to the writer, at least when I was doing comics, to, uh, to tweak something and make it all fit and make it work. Normally, if things were running smoothly, we got a chance to look at what we called the black and whites, which was before the color was in, but after the lettering was in place. Um, and yes, it would be very common to make some minor adjustments there and try to clean things up. Sometimes there wasn't time, and there's more than a few things that I wrote that I, you know, sent the script in and never saw the thing again until there was a full comic book in front of me. Um, but that, that was when something had gone wrong somewhere in the process and things were being rushed. Usually there was time to look things over. Um, and in the best collaborations, that you could actually get on the phone with the artist while they were working and, and talk about stuff. And th- that's when you really get the magic. How did you get the uh, Nightwing Huntress miniseries? Because, I mean, that's pretty early on, and that's... It was, yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Pure luck. <laughs> they just, uh, they knew that Dick Grayson was the character that I was uh, the most invested in, and I, what was that? Was it part of something? There, there was some reason they were already doing it, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was one of my first bigger assignments. Uh, that and the Batman Plus Arsenal was a oversized uh, single shot. But, um yeah, it, it was one of the earlier things they gave to me, and um, it, it was amazing to work. That was Greg Land, right, on the art on that? Mm-hmm. Just absolutely gorgeous. Um, it was interesting. That's one of the ones, uh, the people. I know the question always comes up, what would you do over? That's one of the ones I would do over, and that's actually because um, a couple years later, um, I befriended Greg Rucka, and he had such a crystal clear take on um, Helena's character that I just kind of, oh, I, I need to redo that miniseries because I understand her so much better now. Um, so I think the events would have happened, but they might have played out a little differently if I'd had that insight then. But that's okay. We move on. We learn. <laughs> Do you think your your take on Dick Grayson was always pretty set in your mind? Yeah, that that um, Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne both came to me pretty wholly formed. Um, and it's funny people talk a lot about choices in writing. What made you decide to do this? And I, I don't, you know, it obviously at some point we're doing that subconsciously, but the experience of writing is more about discovery than decision making it it sort of feels like these things are already true and they present themselves to you and you begin to learn about them um so those those two and roy harper were the three that just immediately sort of showed up full formed in my head going write me (laughs) um and so i did it's interesting that i mean obviously we as you said like it's very clear where you kind of fell in love with dick grayson and batman from the animated series where did this appreciation from arsenal come from um that's an excellent question i i think i i saw him in in titans and teen titans um earlier when i was doing my my research on dick grayson and um he had a way of being masculine that I hadn't seen represented in comics up to that point. Like he, he, he really, there was something kind of West coasty about him and he just really, I felt like I knew him. Like he was one of my friends already. I, I just completely got his vibe. Um, but then, yeah, there wasn't a lot of material about him. Um, except for, you know, the amazing Denny O'Neill story, um, about the drug addiction, uh, snowbirds. Um, so, so yeah, somewhere in all of that, just this, this picture started to form. And then I had a friend who was really into him and was really uh, down on that he wasn't being represented enough. And so we were sort of talking about him. And I said, yeah, he needs to be out there more. And so between having a friend who loved him and thinking about him for years and was willing to share that excitement um, and just sort of getting my own sense of him off the page. And, and then also the, the Navajo background really spoke to me. And that was something I'd done a little bit of study on. And I started... the. Things that tend to really uh, 
draw me to characters are either relationships, like with Dick and Bruce, or in the case of Roy, um, some people who are raised in certain cultures and then have to move to other cultures and just completely 100% assimilate to the point that nobody would ever know that that other uh, culture was in their background. That's just fascinating to me, and I, I've done a little research on what that does to people's heads, and uh, often they they count and dream in, in their original language, and uh, th- there was just a lot there that I thought hadn't been explored that I really wanted to play with. Going back for a second, um, with um, Nightwing and Huntress, what, was it pitched to you that, to bring those two characters together specifically, or...? Yeah, the... Uh, the the miniseries was definitely both of them together. I'm trying to think where the... Because you're really asking about the romance, right? Partial, um, partially, yeah. I, was that my idea? Was that editor? I honestly don't remember. Um, I think at that point in Dick Grayson's fictional life, if he was doing a miniseries with a female, that like we were going to at least explore a relationship, that was sort of understood. Um, so... I, I'm sure I believed in the relationship and bought into it and wanted to write it, but I honestly can't remember uh, whose idea it was initially. I, di- I didn't go to them and go, I got to do a, a Huntress Nightwing miniseries and put them together. They, they came to me and said, you're going to do a, a Huntress Nightwing miniseries and somewhere and all that. We knew that they were going to hook up. Well, I think if you have Greg Land doing it, it kind of makes sense. Absolutely. And also, I mean, really, who Dick was at that time, it made sense. He's just, he's so physical, and he's, that's how he explores things. He, you know, he experiences the world as this very physical being. And so if he's not going to kick her, he's going to kiss her. And that, that's kind of where I was at that point. <laughs> what was, um, what was your, t- like, how would you describe your take on Catwoman during the same period? Uh, yeah, that was actually my first monthly. So she she was a character that um, they sort of handed to me, and that was one of the first times I had to go do research and fall in love with the character um, from that research side. Um, and unfortunately, I really did, um, and she clicked with me too. My mom's a um, therapist, and my dad's a sociologist, so I kind of approached her first from like the, the bundle of neuroses, and um, I was talking to my mom about it, and she goes, well, she sounds like the kind of person who has relationships with objects more than people. And I just thought, oh, that's the key like that that's the starting point um and uh she the the other thing that really grew on me about her was that her background was very different than most of the people in gotham's at least at that time it was sort of unique and um i i felt like you know all villains believe that what they're doing is is good and justified and and that they're in the right but in her case like i i kind of almost bought it i was like yeah no one's gonna give her anything she has to take it she's coming from a place where legitimately uh following the rules doesn't do her any good so she has to rewrite the rules and sort of create this world for herself and i i it was easy to be behind her in that and help champion that (laughs) what was it like working with uh, jim balance on that book he had been there a long time um, before me, so in some ways it was very comforting to have someone that, like, he, he was always on time, he knew exactly what he was doing, it, that, you know, it wasn't, I, w- I was the new green one in that case, and then he was the old pro. Um, there, there were, you know, his art is very, very highly sexualized, and that was the first time I had the experience of not, you know, after having these conversations with my mom about who the character was, I didn't really want to show her the comic, I, I was pretty sure she wouldn't like it visually. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, so there, there was some conflict around that. Um, but, uh, later they kind of, they went back on that and they, they really toned down the sexuality so much that I looked at it and I was like, you know, that that's too much in the other direction. She, she is a sexual, sensual being, um, and that needs to be present in her character. And so after all those years of sort of feeling a little bit uncomfortable and weird about it, I was like, I miss it. Like I, (laughs) she was beautiful. (laughs) Um, so, uh, you know, I had mixed feelings, but I wasn't in the position to do anything about it at that point, but go along. And he was extremely professional and kind, and he'd put my cats in, and, you know, I'd send a picture of my cat, and she'd end up on Selena's bed. And <laughs> he, he was great to work with. Um, I'm, I know you probably don't necessarily remember all the specific scripts, but what was it like working on DC One Million? Like, I was just having a crossover chapter of that. Uh, yeah, I don't re- remind me one million. I remember um, the earthquake. I remember no man's land. Which what was one million? Oh, yeah, that was what I did the Catwoman episode for that. That was I think uh, one of my first crossovers, and I was a little bit lost. <laughs> that is uh, crossovers are something that takes a while to get used to. Um, but it's it's kind of that one I remember approaching almost like an Elseworld. Um, 
not remembering specifically. I just remember that it was really different than than what I've been doing before. But so it was sort of a chance to do a, a one shot story. I don't think I attended a bat summit or anything for that one, which later when we did no man's land, I was right there in the room with the whiteboard. So that things made much more sense. It was much easier to work in that context. But, um, what I should have learned from that was not to do long story arcs because you're going to get interrupted at some point and have to go into an event. Um, clearly you can see by my nightwing run later that I did not learn that lesson. though. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't worry. Um, no, I'm not. <laughs> now, in the uh, in the late '90s, you also did JLA Titans. What mm-hmm. was it? What was it like writing all those characters together? Well, fortunately, um, with JLA Titans, I had my partner in crime, Phil Jimenez, with me, and he is amazing. And he knows every character's history forward and backwards, and he loves every single one of them like a best friend. Um, so he was the perfect person to do that with, um, and he was not just the artist on that. He was the co-creator, and he was helping put the story together. And thank God, because it was a nightmare um, in the best possible way. It was fun, but uh, we there were literally days where we would both end up in the office running up and down the halls with a version of the script trying to get people to sign off on it because every single editorial fiefdom you know got a pass at it because they all had characters involved so you'd go you know okay we cleared the bat office we cleared the superman office oh no we can't get it by flash okay back to the drawing board and there would just be days of going back and forth like that so the the act that that it came out and it's cohesive let alone pretty good is amazing and i think that's probably the 36th draft or something that you're looking at when you (laughs) actually see that one but it was a great learning experience in terms of how to do that um and certainly put me in much better stead for going on to the titans afterward uh because that's that anytime you're dealing with a group book you've you've got to juggle that kind of editorial buy-off do you prefer writing uh, solo characters or groups? They're really different. Um, they're, the advantage to a group is those interpersonal dynamics are always present, um, and I think that lets you say things about the characters and explore situations that are very hard to do in an individual book. Um, with someone like Nightwing, he, I, I think of him as being sort of so gregarious and outgoing that I had him doing a first-person narration, so we, we had something to let us in all the time but but that can be a problem with the first person book uh sorry not for with it with the solo book is, is sort of finding a way for the audience to be included and to know what's going on so in in terms of having fun with it um team books are the in the actual writing process i maybe actually prefer team books but in terms of the editorial process yes of course it's easier to work with one character now, how did Titans come out after that? Uh, like, was that always the plan that there was going to be a new Titans book after JLA Titans? You know, I heard a review of it lately, and somebody was quoting interviews that both Phil and I had given at the time, and I think I was saying that they decided to do afterwards, and Phil was saying that um, they knew that was going to happen, and so JLA Titans was kind of a, a ramp into it. Um, if there was disagreement, he was probably right, because he uh, was much more on the pulse of what was happening in the offices. So so that actually does sound correct, that I think they knew they were going to do that, um, and it was a way to, to warm up the, uh, the, the desire for it. <laughs> now, did you get to kind of choose the characters that ended up being in Titans, or how did that work no. out? I mean, I had a wish list, um, and I did pretty well, but um, they, it, it all had to do with what they were doing in their own books at the time. There was a mandate that two of the characters from Jurgens, um, what were those, the new Teen Titans, uh, had to be in there, and I don't... Maybe I got a little bit of say over which one. I think I did pick Damage. I don't think I picked Argent. Um, and uh, I really, like, to me, what was important was that the originals be there, and initially that was signed off on, and then Flash ended up being involved in a very complicated uh, crossover, something happening in his own book, so he really ended up not being available for the greater part of my run, which was disappointing, but, um, so, so a little bit yes and a little bit no. (laughs) I I guess you kind of answered it, so would you have wished you could have used Flash more? Oh, absolutely, yeah, I really, I felt like Flash uh, and and Nightwing were uh, very close, that they'd been friends for a long time, and there was a lot I had wanted to explore there. Um, and the pro- when that happens, you have to find a story reason to do that. You can't just go, you know, oops, sorry, he's not here. You know, it, it has to actually make sense in the context. So I can't remember exactly how I handled it, but I think there was a, a ongoing, t- oh, yeah, attention, and then Jesse Quick's coming in, and that, yeah. So it ends up being way more confusing than one had hoped it would be and in 
instead of exploring the nice part of their relationship, you end up having to explore some of the the tension and the reasons why they're not always hanging out together. Um, but yeah, that, that kind of stuff was happening all the time, and it's par for the course, so you just sort of go with it. <laughs> which which Titan do you think was the the hardest to kind of get a read on in terms of his char- their character? I had the most trouble with Garth. Um, I I just hadn't really read the Aquaman stuff, and um, I ended up having to write him later in a licensed publication novel as well. And by that time, I'd, I'd you know spoken a bunch to Phil, who really like that was one of his favorite characters, and um, I'd done some research. But he was one of those characters who sort of had two or three different origins, like Donna Troy. Oh my god, um, <laughs> you know. So it's like my my take on writing characters like that is that you as much as possible assume that everything is true um, and even if it didn't exactly happen that way that it's at least part of that character's mythology or a rumor about that character so like for instance the idea that Batman used to carry guns um, you know, way back in, in the early Batman comics well I don't believe that ever happened with Batman but I guarantee you you could find somebody in Gotham who would swear that they saw Batman with a gun so you know in that sense it becomes part of the Batman mythology and it is true even if it didn't actually happen and of course when I say true and actual I'm, I mean fictionally but um, you knew that um, so uh, with someone like Donna or Garth there, there's sort of there's whole different versions of even like the universe that they come from in, in some ways um, and that is, that is a little difficult um, uh, to structure with Donna the relationship that she had with Dick at least was so clear um, that that, it, that gave me a through line um, and with Garth I didn't quite have as much of a handle on that either so he was the one I think I struggled with the most in the context of the Titans book itself who was your favorite Titan to write oh uh Dick and Roy you know those those two guys are always my favorite so um now how how did uh, working on Black Widow come about um just seems interesting because you're doing so much DC work in the bat office and suddenly Black Widow happens you know the, the the idea that DC and Marvel are in a rivalry is, is a little bit made up. I mean, I, I suppose they are financially to some extent, but it's all the same people, right? There's only so many comic editors and writers and artists, and most people are jumping back and forth constantly. Um, so I, I was friends by then with the people who were running Marvel. I, I knew, you know, knew them from cons, just hanging out, and I really wanted to do something, and they had that project coming up. Um, and I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. Well, what was the, uh, the process of working with J.G. Jones? Oh, he's amazing too. Another one. I've just, yeah, my luck with artists has been amazing. Um, he, uh, you know, again, I would send the full scripts in and he was somebody who was in New York at the time. So I would occasionally run into him and we talk about it a little bit. Um, and, uh, it, it was really fun and he was very into it. And again, it was that experience of seeing the pages come back and just being blown away and, and watching it all come to life so cinematically and beautifully it was really exciting. What did you enjoy about writing Yelena Belova? I, um, my most serious um, college, it actually started before that, I guess late high school through college and at post-college relationship was with a first-generation Russian immigrant. Um, and she was uh, totally my touchstone for uh, working with those characters and sort of, and that goes back to the thing I was talking about with Roy with the Navajo, when someone has this other culture so deeply embedded in them, but they've assimilated uh, into their, you know, into American culture in such a way that they in some ways seem more American and more casual and better at um, slang and everything than everybody else around them because they're so perfectly, uh, she, she was amazing. She would, uh, she spoke better English than I did, but would occasionally get stuck on something like a word like Band-Aid. So it was really interesting, you know, the, the, the brand names or something. She's, you know, what do you call it when you're wrapping the wound? You know, and she would have just the perfect explanation of it, dictionary precise, and you're like, Band-Aid? Um, <laughs> but uh, so so I felt very um, close to Natasha in that sense, that, that I, I had a kind of a real-life role model for her. Um, I also really liked the idea that there was ballet in her background and that there was a lot of really good she was sort of a grown-up by, by the time I got to her, and that was a little bit rare in comics, or at least in the characters that I'd been writing, um, and I really appreciated that about her. I never thought about that, but I guess a lot of your character, the characters you were writing were a little bit more immature in some yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, they're like early 20s, and she, Natasha felt like she'd had a life. Like, <laughs> you know. 
Um, now, what was, you kind of mentioned before about the idea that there was, a, you know, bat summits here and there, but what was it like working in the bat office during such a, a big period of crossovers with Cataclysm, with No, no Man's Land, all the stuff yeah. kind of going on? What was that like? Um, it was actually pretty great um, because it, they were very well organized. It was a super dynamic, exciting group of editors. Um, they had a stable of writers that they really trusted and they wanted to hear from. Um, and, you know, you're, you're being pulled into an office in New York City uh, and given a bunch of coffee and donuts and a whiteboard. And, and it really does kind of feel for a little bit like anything can happen. My God, we can do anything. We've got this whole universe. Um, so I, I really – I. Uh, loved the people involved. I, I really felt very close to those editors. There were some amazing writers uh, in that room that it was great to work with. The process is exhausting. It's a weird way to write, um, and it's maybe both the best and the worst thing about writing for comics in terms of um, writing is usually very solitary. You're usually alone in a room you know, with your <laughs> computer, and nobody bothers you for days, and, and you're just sort of getting this stuff out of you um, and suddenly you're in this extremely social situation and you're collaborating and you can't do anything without checking with a bunch of people. So it, it goes against the grain of what I've been taught, but it was also really exciting and it opened up possibilities um, that, and, and it was so much, like, I think that was happening a little bit anyway, just because of how many books there were, but we wouldn't normally have that level of communication. So to be doing it deliberately and on purpose in that room, in a way that everybody understood that's what was going to happen, that was pretty fun. I also felt very accepted um, by that group and was just completely one of the guys in that room. And, and part of what started to become a jarring experience for me is right around that time, I started to get a little bit of attention from um, what I call industry press, you know, people. Uh, people like you who review comics or deal with comic related journalism mm -hmm. um and they at that point were obsessed with my being female and so it was this weird uh disconnect between almost forgetting that and really nobody paying any heed to that within these actual meetings and then the minute stepping out of that those meeting rooms and being kind of pulled aside and immediately separated and othered uh it, it was kind of weird and, and disorienting, and that that started my uh, distaste for that line of questioning, <laughs> All right. which which took me years to get over. It. But I'm, I am over it, so it's fine to ask now. But there was a period of time where I really uh, started to bristle about the what's it like to be a female in a male-dominated industry because it was just like it, it would not stop, and that was kind of the only context that my work was being evaluated in. Um, and who knows how to answer a question like that? I've never been a male in a male-dominated industry, so I don't have much to compare it to. Mm -hmm. um, Coming out of No Man's Land, you launched the Gotham Knights book. What, right. What was it yeah. like kind of being involved in launching a, a title like that? It, that was amazing, and, and it remains one of the proudest moments of my career. Um, you know, Denny pulled me aside and said, you know, we, we want you to do a bad book. What do you think it would be about? And I, by that time, I knew. I was like, it would, it's, it's got to be family dynamics. That's what I've been writing about. I keep circling back to those themes, so that needs to be... Um, you know, it's an it's entire raison d'etre, and um, they were just extremely supportive. I was given a lot of leeway, um, and it was amazing to. It's kind of what I come in comics to do. So it was the, in a way, the completion of the goal, and um, uh, just so gratifying in that sense. Uh, but also terrifying because you're, you know, learning in print and with one of the most famous characters in Western literature. Period. Um, so in, in that sense, uh, it, it, the, one of the things I love about Batman is that he it's such a huge responsibility, but also you can't ruin him. Like there's nothing, no matter how bad you are, he's going to shake you off at the end of the day and go back to doing what he does. So it, it, it opens you up to take some risks and try some new things. And, and I felt uh, very firmly entrenched in Gotham by that time and very supported by my editors and very in love with those characters. And it, it was a pretty remarkable experience. What were some of your favorite stories that come out of that run? I really liked uh, the one with um, Hugo Strange. I think it's a four-part arc, um, and I think I mentioned that my mom's a therapist, so working with a character who is a psychiatrist was really fun for me. I sort of understood how he was going to approach things and ways to uh, trick him, and, and um, I wanted to do an examination of what it would be like for Dick to lose Batman, specifically not Bruce, but Batman, who I think he had more of a relationship with in some ways than Bruce, um, and that was a way to explore that without uh, pretending to kill Batman 
for too long because that you know nobody was going to believe that. So there there was a context to tell the emotional side of that story without over manipulating the physical side of it that I really enjoyed. Now, for a while, it looks like the book kind of got to exist on its own without being part of crossovers. What was it like when that yeah. when it started to kind of get pulled back into the crossover milieu? Um, it, it was great not having to do that and getting to just run with it and tell whatever kind of stories I wanted. And then I think if that had happened earlier, it would have thrown me. But by that time, I was pretty used to the crossover drills. So I, I just took it in stride. And it does mean that the book is being accepted and it's part of the universe but crossovers are strange they also like when you think about how do you go back and read comics you know do you do you sit down and pull out july 1999 and read like people don't read that way they 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 pull out gotham knights and they read around or they pull out titans or whatever it is that they're going to read so the the crossover things were always a little strange to think about how that was going to live on in, in history and I guess people who are super or way more organized than me do in fact have them uh, sitting in the proper story arcs and everything but um, to, to me I, that, that was a type of storytelling uh, that it was always hard for me to figure out uh, do people like them as much as we're pretending they like them and, and I guess to, they are pretty exciting because you get to see um, larger events and explore things that you couldn't explore with a single book but they're also from a purely story structure point of view they're a little bit confusing <laughs> now when you I guess stopped writing Gotham Knights was that your decision or how did that kind of come about no um, that was uh, towards the so I'd actually by that time most of the editors that I've been working with had been leaving DC and being replaced um, and uh, there was huge structural shifts happening internally in the company and I sort of felt like I survived one or two of those rounds and then in the third round um, <laughs> it started to get brutal and I just started to lose things like crazy um, and uh, no I was told I could either have Gotham Knights or Nightwing which I remember was an agonizing decision so I uh, I stayed on Nightwing um, and then Nightwing also was just taken away from me and I was on an exclusive contract at that time so I couldn't go work for Marvel at that particular moment in history um, and I was trying to get other things cleared and they weren't nothing was getting cleared and it was sort of clear to me that I was being blacklisted but I didn't know why or what to do about it so um, I, I left very little voluntarily <laughs> Um, we'll, we'll get to kind of there in a second because I'm interested in that but also how did coming on Nightwing even come up as an option I mean Chuck Dixon obviously had been on it for a long time how did you get positioned as being able to be the one to replace him he did leave voluntarily as I understood it um, and because we and he and I had been working very closely together in the um, crossover events and stuff we, we were friendly by then um, and I'd done things like Nightwing Huntress and, and I'd, I'd sort of already been picking up the Nightwing slack <laughs> if there was a Nightwing thing that Chuck wasn't doing it it was usually me um, and uh, they knew how much I loved the character and how crazy I was about him and and it took great pleasure and, and sort of said, I don't suppose you'd be interested in maybe, I don't know, writing this book with this character Nightwing and totally freaking me out. Um, <laughs> so that was that was a great moment. <laughs> and Chuck was was wonderful and stayed very available. And, you know, he let me talk to him about where he was going, why he made the choices he made, and um, just remained incredibly generous and accessible so that I, I didn't feel like I was <laughs> wandering off a pier on my own. I, I, I had a good sense of what he had set up and when you started writing Nightwing, what did you, what kind of stories did you want to tell with him? Like, what did you want to focus on? What what kind of Nightwing stories did you need to get out of you? And is that what we ended up seeing? That's a great question. Um, no, you, you saw an effort to do that. And, and there's a couple points about him that I believed really deeply that I only in retrospect realized were not ever exactly clearly coherently on the page. And that, so that means I dropped the ball somewhere. But um, what really interested me about him was his energy and his drive um, and that he'd been raised his whole life to make everything better all the time. And so what happens when you put someone like that in a situation where that just can't be done um, and how uh, ragged will he run himself? Um, and when I started um, and, and also, but you know, also he's a character with, with a lot of um, joy and energy and um, optimism and I, loyalty, I think is really one of his defining qualities. And I wanted to explore all of that. Um, towards the end, and I know we'll talk about this more, um, but uh, the more editorial mandates started to come in, the more difficult it got. And, and the editorial mandates that started to come in were bizarre. Like, he can't be in costume for six months. And 
uh, okay, he's got to have a broken leg for four months. And I, like it was, it was stuff like that that started to get very tricky to work with. And by that time, I was just trying to tell good stories and figure out what was going on because it was clear that there were things going on behind the scenes that, that were going to be problematic. What made you decide to kill off Blockbuster? I was uh, asked to do that um, and wanted to do it in a meaningful way. And I originally wanted to explore the you know the, the idea that I sat down with was could he do this? Um, and I couldn't make him do it. Um, it just didn't. There was nothing I could think of that you could do to that character that would put him in that spot. Um, but what I was able to push him into was, well, could he be in a situation where he's um, so out of control of his own uh, actions and normal way of doing things? He's out of touch with his own modus operandi that he lets it happen in front of him. And knowing that Nightwing is someone who I think we all believed, and he certainly absolutely believed, could have stopped it, um, that was as close as I could get to having him pull a trigger. I always loved the way I actually just love that issue entirely because it just felt very authentic to where the character was at that time as and also who who he was deep down as well. Oh and, my god, thank you. I think you're the only person in the world. <laughs> I think everybody else reviles that issue. Really? No. <laughs> because of the thing with uh the, the rape issue with Tarantula that just became this huge, huge um, overshadowing thing and, and was so... That what you're talking about is exactly what my focus was on on that scene and I made the mistake of including um, the, the sexualized part of it almost as a... Um, almost allegorically, but of course rape isn't allegorical and it really touched a lot of buttons for people. Um, and it, but like it was so much the focus of the issue that I think many people missed the blockbuster part entirely and that's absolutely what that story was supposed to be about was was the murder not the sex yeah no, not I, the rape. I wonder what why do you think that is why do you think the focus got kind of shifted like that um i think rape is extremely um volatile and personal and i was trying to use it in a sort of a literary way and it's not a literary event for people at all it's it's a very real um crushing physical uh it, you know, it, it's a touchstone issue that people have extremely strong feelings about it. And the, I don't know if irony is quite the right word, but what's what's weird about that is I know that. I'm a sexual abuse survivor myself. Um, and in some ways, I think that's what blinded me to it, if that makes sense. That, like, I, I was so used to just sort of carrying on anyway that I kind of thought everybody else could just deal with it with me. Um, and there were people that were not ready to deal with it. And then because of what happened immediately afterwards and me losing more and more control of that book as, as the editorial behind the scenes stuff started to really pick up. Um, I didn't get to address it properly. So the other reason it stayed with people so much is because it, uh, it just hung there as an unresolved issue. Um, and had the character really worked through it in some meaningful way and taken the readers with him, I think it might've played out differently. Um, but it didn't, it, it, it hung there. I said stupid things about it in interviews and tried to backtrack and say it wasn't rape. So that made people even angrier. Um, and I was kind of bewildered at first because, um, as what you were saying, my focus had really been on the murder and what was happening with him internally. Um, and honestly, that rooftop scene was an afterthought. It, it really was something we just tacked on. And wouldn't it be cool if, and boy, was it not cool. <laughs> and I really, I learned so much from that and, um, you know, went back and did years worth of women's studies and all kinds of stuff to kind of figure out exactly where I went wrong and, and to learn to apologize and try to make amends for it. Um, but it's a great example of how, uh, much attention you need to pay in the creation of fictional universes and stories because your focus intent can be completely in one direction and a misstep you know to, to one millimeter to the left just completely obscures the story no you're absolutely right and i mean just kind of flipping through the issue now i mean i i i never i don't know why but yeah i was i was always drawn more to the fact that I mean, he's he's emotionally broken after what happened yeah. what, what he lets happen so like exactly. I, I just kind of figured, like I, I, I'm not even speaking well, but at the <laughs> end, on the last page, like just you know, the last couple of pages, just where the fact that like he can't, he can't even process what's happened, uh, exactly, and that you know at the very end where he's like it's never going to stop. It's just I was that always kind of hit me hard because he's a guy who's always done the right thing, and now suddenly he, as you said, he could have done something. He thinks he could have done something, and he actively didn't, and is that's just as bad as killing someone. Right, for him, 
you know, for you, for you or I, it would be like, oh, well, what could I have done? But yeah, for him, exactly. Um, he feels completely responsible, and not just for Blockbuster, but now also for having damned tarantula because he you know and letting her do it she's she's sort of now she's a murderer and he feels like that's on his hands too um so yeah no i'm really excited because you're one of the first people i've talked to who who did see through everything to my intent and the story i was trying to tell there um but it was a really interesting learning experience for me because most people didn't and i i completely do understand why now but um yes that was the story i was trying to tell (laughs) so thank you (laughs) and it makes sense too with how much you love the character to be able to kind of really put him in that tough place where he has to kind of reevaluate everything about who he is because of one decision Right, exactly, exactly, and and that idea of breaking somebody all the way down until he kind of needed to be shocked out of he was just in a downward spiral. And also, the other thing that's problematic though with that story is that, of course, the flip side of that is that you're supposed to build them back up, and that was completely my intent. Um, and he was supposed to come out the other side of that just completely reaffirmed and strong and healthy. And um, he made this deal with Deathstroke to save um, Bloodhaven. And it was supposed to work. That was 100% the story. And then I got this note that, oh, yeah, you got to blow up Bloodhaven next issue. And I'm like, wait, what? That, that's literally the antithesis of what I'm setting up. Like, nothing, nothing that could happen would be more off point for what I was just setting in motion. And But as you saw, that is indeed what happened. And so I didn't get to return him. He, he remained broken at the end of my run, which I really felt bad about. When you were writing Nightwing, how in your mind did you – envision Bloodhaven because obviously Gotham City is very much a character in the Batman books just like Bloodhaven Bloodhaven was for Nightwing but how how did you characterize them differently because you had been in the Bat universe for a while writing in Gotham so now you're writing in Bloodhaven instead I I think uh, you know this is oversimplified but um, Gotham's sort of New York and Bloodhaven was kind of the worst parts of New Jersey Um, and I have family that's actually from New Jersey and had been living in New York so I had a pretty visceral sense of what that meant Um, and in terms of energy and residency uh, and agency the the difference is that no matter how bad things can get in a city and you know as we've seen they can get absolutely horrible but there's always uh, energy and pride there to um, to recreate things and make something different happen um, and these other places that the suburbs of that can some, sometimes end up being almost sort of sinkholes where when things start to go bad uh, there isn't enough civic pride there isn't enough sense of possibility there isn't enough um, socioeconomic mobility uh, to, to change anything and people get really stuck in a different way so there's you can think of it literally in you know a more humid, heavier, swampier place, and then also the sort of the figurative version of that—that that it's just a harder place to get out of. It's a place where you don't feel like you have as many options, um, and that weighs on people differently. Now, with with Dick, what was it about his relationship with Barbara that you enjoyed? Um, she. They were really good friends on top of anything else that was happening, Um, and they were both so bright, and she, I thought, really understood him, Um, and I I think part of what I liked is that she absolutely understood everything about him that made him a terrible choice for her, and she just loved the hell out of him anyway, Um, and that seemed very real to me. I knew a lot of people in real life who had relationships like that. Um, I think, you know, he's an exhausting person to actually be around. he's sort of overwhelming is a good way to describe him. And when you're the bad guy, he's overwhelming in terms of you're not going to get away from him. But when you're a good guy, he's overwhelming in terms of his energy and his drive to be helpful. And for someone like Barbara, who's so fiercely independent and so determined to be able to do things on her own, he, that guy is never going to stop getting things for her out of the highest cabinets, no matter how many times she tells him that she fucking has the place laid out, she can handle it, you know, she, <laughs> this is her, it's her domain, she doesn't need his help, he's not going to stop helping. Um, and and it, it, that's like, I thought, a very real and sort of sweet issue to have friction around. You know, it's, it's not that they're bad to each other, it's that they are bad for each other in some very interesting ways um and from his point from his side it's that she so much represents the past um and so there's always some concern is the um affection is is it is he 
grasping backwards to try to hold on to something, or is he really moving forward with her into a future? I, I just thought it was a very, very interesting relationship dynamic between two fascinating characters who are both just whip smart and um, involved in very dangerous, difficult lives. Now, you actually did end up writing a couple issues with the damaged Bloodhaven. Was that hard to write? Oh, it was, uh, yes. It was absolutely heartbreaking. Um, both because uh, of my you know, investment in Bloodhaven is a fictional place because of the story that I've been trying to tell, um, but also because it was sort of metaphoric at that point for what I felt like was happening in the Bat Office or DC Comics in general. Like the, the whole place just stopped being anything I could recognize. Um, and in a really funny way, that it, that blowing up of Bloodhaven happened very concurrently with the blowing up of the internal DC structure that I had been familiar with. Um, so uh, yeah, there was a lot of anxiety around that from multiple areas. And when when did you know? I mean, your so with your last issue of Nightwing, did you know in advance that that was going to be the last issue of Nightwing you were doing, or how did not, that? Not till the issue right before it. I was told I can't remember what the number was. Was it one fifteen, one sixteen? Um, the whichever one it was, I was told the next one's going to be your last. So I, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare things and get out of there, <laughs> tidy up. Now, when you, I mean, I, it's interesting because. Now I know a lot more having talked from creators like yourself and what kind of the business looks like. But at the time, I remember reading your last issue, not realizing it was going to be the last issue, first of all, and really enjoying the ending with Dick and Barbara getting engaged. And that always felt like, oh, wow, what's the one year later going to look like? And then one year later was something completely foreign and you weren't around anymore. Right, exactly. And um, it's, it's interesting. I think at that time it later came out they were already toying with the idea of killing him or something and they were people have asked me like did you know that was going to happen and no they were smart enough not to tell me that that was on the table because I would have had a fit but (laughs) um, I did know that they by that time the editorial edict which seems to still be in place that people are not allowed to have relationships meaningful relationships or marriages at DC at the moment um, that went into effect then and I did know that and I knew that they were not going to be able to stay together but I wanted to at least have that moment between them um so yeah that, that was a very bittersweet issue to to write and kind of know I was pretty sure that at least 90% of that was going to get erased was there any pushback on even including that that piece I mean for... no I think they really just didn't freaking care at that point and especially knowing that they were going to jump into the one year ahead I think they already had ways in place to fix anything I did so they, they weren't too concerned now, when you were, I guess in the la- the latter little bit of your Nightwing run, you got to work with Phil Hester. What was that like? Uh, uh, I mean, another great artist. It, it's To be honest, there was so much turmoil going on. I don't remember the experience. I don't think he was one of the people I ever got to really talk to on the phone or collaborate with. Um, it was just one of so many changes coming in. But I thought he did a great job, um, and I felt hopeful that that meant that they had plans for the book continuing and so like, I didn't I didn't read it as a bad sign at all but in, in retrospect the, the whole thing was sort of falling apart from different angles okay now um, one question I did want to ask is that a character you had showing up here and there throughout your different books was Superman what was your take on using Superman in your various issues because you used him in Nightwing I think you used him in uh, Gotham Knights yeah, and he, yeah, I actually later even did a Smallville uh, licensed publication novel and stuff. Uh, he's super fun to work with. Um, oh, I do have an interesting story about him from the, um, the, I don't know if you read Relative Heroes, but it was a team of, um, it, it was sort of an original superhero team that I wrote. And I had partial creator ownership of that book initially until they met Superman. And I didn't realize this, but this is one of the things about the business that's kind of fascinating. Like literally the minute those characters shook his hand, they ceased to be creator owned characters and became DC universe characters. It's, it's so hard to like kind of wrap your head around the stuff that happens in that. <laughs> but um, he, he is obviously, I, I mean, I think the most iconic character in the world, it's like him and Mickey Mouse and he's way more interesting. Um <laughs> Uh, but in terms of recognizability, I mean, there's nowhere you can go that people don't know what that S means, um, and that that's extremely powerful. Um, personally, as a writer, I, this may sound surprising, but I don't actually really like superpowers very much. I think they're um, a- allegorical the same way you know the Greek gods were allegorical or something, and I'm not sure you need those level of powers to explore the human condition. I kind of think we're almost more – the more that you strip away, the more interesting we get. Um 
but that said, he is the, the pinnacle of that. And, um, he's also kind of for, for characters like Dick and stuff, he, you know, he's just had to be so influential and important and inspiring. So to have him be able to be the hero that your heroes can still get that feeling about that, you, you know, no matter, no matter who the superhero is, they're going to be like, Oh my God, Superman. And, and, it, to have a character that they can react to that way is pretty special. Uh, Batman being the obvious exception, mm-hmm. but but they have a great dynamic too. So no, that actually comes makes me think of a question that you know it does seem like a lot of your work was on non-powered characters for the most part. Obviously, Titans withstanding, but um, right. what was it like writing Ghost Rider? Because that's a fully the other <laughs> direction. It is. Although I see, I loved that one. I I feel like his powers since they come literally from hell like i don't know that that sort of felt okay again it, it felt like a really good exploration of our uh of human mythology the way we ourselves have shaped it um that was interesting i was actually supposed to do another black widow and i heard that they were doing a ghostwriter and i think they had tapped greg Rucka to do the ghostwriter and greg Rucka was dying to write black widow and i was dying to write ghostwriter and we basically swapped in secret and sent in the <laughs> the proposals and the proposals got accepted and we're like surprise <laughs> at least that's how i remember it happening i someone else is probably like no reason that's not what happened um but uh so uh, he was a character that i did actually know about before my um entry into comics and i knew about him from motorcycle culture and it i felt so stupid later when i put it together but it hadn't occurred to me that he came from comic books and the minute i realized that he, i was like of course that's where he comes from um but, but he had been in my life in a totally different context, and so I was excited about the possibility of telling a story that gave him back to those people, because I really felt like they had been, the, the non-comic book reading motorcycle people had been the ones keeping his legend alive, um, and uh, feeding him energy and, and making that myth live on, so I, I wanted to do something for them. Do you, uh, were they, did they present you the, you know, do, using Johnny Blaze, or was that, because I think that was his big kind of comeback, because... I think Hatch had been around for years and Johnny Blaze hadn't really been utilized in a while. It was my choice, um, and Stuart Moore was my editor on that, and he said, well, go think about it and let me know. And I came back in and I sat down and I said, I think it's really got to be Johnny Blaze. And he was like, I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) So um, I think they were going to let me do whatever I wanted, but clearly they they were ready to have uh, Johnny back and moving around. And again, because I, I was looking at, I, I, you know, I don't think the motorcycle culture had any idea who any of the other people were. That um, they knew Johnny Blaze, so it had to be Johnny Blaze if it, the story was going to be for them. Okay. Um, and then just to wrap up here, um, so what? Um, I guess after Nightwing kind of happened, and then you were, you were removed from Nightwing. I guess some people, this is the most indelicate way I can ask the question, but where, where did you go? Well, um, so I started to explain that a little bit. I was actually on an exclusive contract um, to DC, so I could not work in comics. Um, I, I couldn't get anything cleared at DC, um, and I wasn't allowed contractually to, to just jump over to Marvel or something, which would have been the, the natural thing to do at that point. Um, so, uh, and I was fired in a really not cool way. And I, so I, I went away to lick my wounds. Basically. I, um, I moved back to California. I'd been living in New York at that time. Um, and I ended up, uh, doing, working for the gaming industry for a while. Cause that was the other thing that I knew really well was RPG. Um, and over the past, uh, several years, I've kind of worked my way back in and I'm doing all kinds of writing now, including, um, a bunch of graphic novelizations for like random house penguin and, um, bigger companies that are looking at representing sort of classic material through graphic novels, which I think is really exciting. Um, but yeah, it, it was a horrible couple of years. I'll be honest. Um, I, I, got fired in such a way that it kind of really chewed up a bunch of my momentum and I couldn't figure out how to get back in the swing of things for a while. So I had to go get a day job. <laughs> now, um, now what, what can we look forward to reading from you that's coming out soon or that's recently come yeah, out? Or? Um, I have a couple things going on. Um, I just finished, um, I was talking about those graphic novelization things. One that's already out, or there's two of them, um, is from the uh, Uglies series by um, Scott Westerfeld. And uh, those are um, kind of manga graphic novels. Uh, And then we just finished doing some from Tamara Pierce's uh, um, 
I don't know if I'm allowed to say which, but <laughs> one of her collections of books we started to turn into graphic novels, and that should be out uh, probably next year. Um, and those were really exciting to they're, – they're very graphic books anyway, so, so turning them into graphic novels was kind of a no-brainer, and I think it's going to be great. Um, I've been doing a little work here and there with Dynamite. I did a radio play that will show up soon, I think. Um, and I'm working on a book about 18th century pirates, which is my current obsession. Oh, wow. um, and that will be, a, I think that's going to be an e-publication, hopefully. And the best way to keep track of all this is at my new website, which is devingraysoncentral.com. And I'll update that. As the Publishing is weird because the deadlines from our end, you have to write things so fast, but then they don't show up for years, literally <laughs> sometimes. So, um, But I'm, I'm writing full-time again, and there are things coming. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to read about uh, 18th century pirates because that's always Yay. been... Uh... Big, Do you watch Black Sails? I have to. I have to get the plug in. Oh my god! Uh, you know, sadly, I, I I think I watched the first couple episodes and I just kind of fell away from it. Not because really? I didn't. Not because I, I didn't like it. Imagine that. <laughs> not because I didn't like it. Um, just Try more. Try to get back in and stick through um, through season two because season two is is honestly some of the most remarkable TV I've ever seen. Um, and the response that I had to um, Batman the Animated Series, I haven't had a response to anything like that until this. So. Oh wow. This is the new, my, my, suddenly, I'm putting the bad ears away, it's going to be pirates now, and we'll see what happens. Because <laughs> that other thing worked out pretty well, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to give Black Sails another try then. <laughs> well, Devin, thank, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. All right. Thank you. All right. Be well. Bye. Bye-bye.